Well, this week we take a break from the Sermon on the Mount. Lord willing, we return to it uh, next week. Uh, This morning we'll be looking at several different passages, and the first one is found in 1 Timothy chapter 3, uh, verses um, 1 through 13. Hear now the word of the Lord. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, the overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with deceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons, if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanders, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. So, Father, I pray that you would help us as we look at your word. Lord, we thank you for your word. It is good and holy and true and inerrant. Lord, grant us anointing to the hearer and preacher alike. In the name of Jesus, amen. Well, today's a bit of a different kind of sermon. Uh, We have reached the point in our congregation uh, in which it is time to nominate men to the office of elder and deacon. Uh, So I preach at the end of August every year a sermon on the qualifications and roles of elders and deacons. Just to let you know where we stand as a congregation and how this works, uh, officer nominations will be open starting next Sunday and will run through Tuesday, October the 8th. So that's a full month. Uh, Just as a reminder, if you've not done this before, I'll tell you how it works. If you're a new member of our church, we're so thankful you've joined us since the last time we had this chat. Uh, There will be forms that will go out in our bulletins, and we'll make sure they go out by email as well with everything going on. Uh, And in order to nominate a man, he must be nominated by two different members of the congregation. Uh, Please be sure to talk to the man to make sure he is willing to serve. That happens a lot, where someone just puts a name in the hat, someone they think would do well, but in fact they're not willing to serve. Uh, On the back of the nomination sheet, which will begin being distributed next week, there is a list of all the men who are currently serving as elders and deacons. And uh, in the last class of that, of class 2020, we'll be rotating off at the end of this year. Normally, uh, a man must take a year off before he can serve another three-year term. Um, So we'll continue to be talking about that. Once nominations go in, they'll go before the session for approval. Uh, And then those men who have been approved to uh, go through the training will, starting uh, the Sunday after nominations close, there'll be a six-week class called Men in Training. That class is only required once for men. Uh, For officers, if they've gone through it before, they need not go through it again. Uh, And things are a little different if you've been ordained or not before. But if you have questions about that, uh, reach out to me here at the church. The election will be actually in December, so this is kind of a, a long process. 
You know, church government is not one, is not a topic that's quote-unquote seeker-friendly, right? I don't know of any revivals that have been preached on 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 and Acts chapter 6. It's one of those texts uh, that are vitally important. Those texts are vitally important to the health of the church. Uh, But if you're tuning in and you're not a member of our congregation, um, stay with us. This is important stuff. And the reason it's important is because God spends a lot of ink on it in the Word of God. You think about this. How church government is done is a really big and important topic. So many of our denominations are divided, actually, based on this issue. Uh, The Episcopal Church, the Methodist Church, these have Episcopal forms of government in which there are bishops. Uh, We are Presbyterian. Presbyterian, all that actually means is that we are led by elders. And so it's actually in both of our names, Episcopal, Episcopal form of government, and Presbyterian Church, the Presbyterian form of government. And so it really is an important thing um, that we need to look to see what God's Word says about how we are to have our churches governed. You think about how important this is to the health of a congregation. So I'm 35. Um, I've been ordained now almost nine years, and that's pretty new in ministry. I'm still a very young man with much to still to learn. And so it would be a big difference if I were the only one at the helm, right? If I were the one calling all the shots, praise Jesus, that's not the case, especially with coronavirus. Versus the way we do it, where we have a group of men, very godly men, some of them who have been ordained officers in our congregation longer than I've been alive. They've seen just about everything, and so we make decisions together. And that's the difference in how we run the church. That's a church government thing, and so it's an important topic. So let's dig in and see what the Word of God says about how we are to have our churches governed and set up. The technical word, the theological word for this is polity, polity, church polity. Well, first, we have to recognize that the elders are not the head of the church. I'm not the head of the church. The deacons, they are not the head of the church. This is really important. There's one head of the church, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Colossians 1 verse 18 says, And he, Christ, is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Who is the head of the church? It is Christ. Why is he head of the church? Well, first of all, he's God. So that's a pretty good qualification. Two, he came to purchase the church with his blood. Do you remember over there in Matthew chapter 1? where the angel speaks to Mary, and she says, and he has come to save a people, his people. He has come to save the church. And he is now the head of the church, and he has purchased it and founded the church by the shedding of his blood. And when he left to go back to heaven in his ascension, he didn't stop being head of the church. He didn't stop being king and and in charge of all things of his people. Uh, In fact, it was better for him to go because he tells us he would send a helper, the Holy Spirit, through whom he guides us and directs the church. This isn't just a theoretical statement. This isn't like something like imaginary numbers in math. Do you remember that? Uh, I remember studying that in math, and uh, and it was just kind of all made up. It never made any sense, and we never used it. That's not what this is like. Christ really is the head of this church. And you have to realize that, too, that in our session meetings— in our diaconate meetings, that's, that is in our minds. We forget sometimes. But when we pray and we begin our session meetings, we, 
We humble ourselves before the Lord and seek His will, not ours. Right? It's not about the desires of the elders, the agenda of the deacons. It's not about our own um, uh, wishes and our plans that we have for the congregation. The officers, the elders and deacons, we seek to submit to Christ. He calls the shots, and we seek him through his word and prayer and his guidance of the Holy Spirit. Uh, so that's an important thing to remember, that when we think about who is the head of the church in general, the the universal, or we might say lower C Catholic church, that's not the Roman Catholic church, but the universal church, the visible church, it is Christ. It is Christ. And that's very much true even here, specifically at our congregation, First Presbyterian Church of Bruton. So when we see the model of the first century church, when we see Paul and his missionary companions going about uh, founding churches, what what did they do? Well, we find that what they did is they appointed elders in each church so that when he left, they would not be without leadership. And leadership was entrusted, Christ's leadership was entrusted to the elders of these congregations. And so we find in Scripture, especially in two different spots, 1 Timothy 3, Titus chapter 1, we find the qualifications of elders. But first of all, what is an elder? Well, it's not a new thing. It's not a new office. It's been around the Old Testament as well. God's people in both the Old and New Testament, uh, God's people have always been governed and shepherded by, uh, under the authority of God, uh, by elders. It's nothing new. It's always been that way. Don't you remember when um, Jethro comes to Moses and says, hey, you can't do this all by yourself. You need help. Guess what? They appointed elders who helped him to govern. Well, what is an elder? An elder is um, someone uh, to whom Christ has entrusted the spiritual leadership of the church. So to elders has been entrusted the spiritual leadership of the local congregation. And there are two types of elders uh, in the Presbyterian church. There are two types of elders, teaching elders and ruling elders. So a teaching elder, I'm a teaching elder. I'm a teaching elder, and what that means is I've been to seminary, uh, and I have gone before Presbytery, which is our uh, geographical gathering of Presbyterian churches. I've been examined on um, what I believe and what I teach uh, to make sure it is orthodox. And I've been especially set apart for gospel ministry, for proclamation of his word, for administering the sacraments like that, well, the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. And I also have the authority to marry folks. Although in the state of Alabama, you no longer have to have a pastor involved to, uh, to marry folks. I've just learned this recently. Uh, but there are other elders, and those are ruling elders. And those are the men from our local congregation whom the Lord has brought up. Uh, through the nomination process and the choosing of uh, God's people within the congregation, the members of the church, who, along with the teaching elder, uh, govern uh, and lead the congregation. It's really important you, you realize that we have the same authority. Pastors and ruling elders have the exact same authority. I might be able to preach and teach uh, on a regular basis or preach on a regular basis and administer the sacraments where uh, my ruling elder brethren uh, cannot, but we have the same authority. So that means that when we go through the nominations process, that we take it very seriously. For these men, we'll be governing the church. Uh, I've read long ago somewhere that as go the officers, so goes the church. So it's a weighty thing indeed. So what does an elder do? Well, we can divide up his role into four different categories. The first is that an elder is called to shepherd the flock. 
Christ is the chief shepherd. He is uh, the shepherd of God's sheep. He is the great shepherd by the eternal covenant. Uh, and God has called elders to be his under-shepherds, to pastor, to lovingly pastor, and for the care of souls of the members of the church. But elders are also entrusted with the task of being an overseer. It's another word that is used to refer to elders in the uh, New Testament. And it refers to their um, role as administrators, right? There is an administrative aspect to being an officer, to being an elder in the congregation. That's been especially true in the coronavirus. Uh, there's been a lot of, there have been a lot of administrative issues and decisions that have had to been made. And two, the office of elder has been entrusted decisions of when and where to meet, scheduling the Lord's Supper, uh, making sure that, uh, that what is preached is true and correct. And that falls into the third category of guarding the flock. Elders are called to guard the flocks, just like shepherds out in, their sheep, out in the pastures are guarding their sheep from wolves from the outside. So it is the job of elders to make sure that there aren't wolves coming into the congregation who are seeking to sow division or even heresy. But also making sure, guarding the flock, to make sure that what the preacher uh, preaches and what is taught in classrooms and our children's programs, to make sure that these things are theologically correct, right, and from the Bible. Finally, his role is to be an example to the flock. Uh, as goes the officers, so goes the church. Uh, elders are called to be an example in things like holiness, godliness, piety, uh, hospitality, and especially in evangelism. Uh, you know, really, the, as, go, as, as the elders, it is the elders' job to set the spiritual tone and tenor of the congregation. That's why it's a, a really weighty task that you have been given as members of this congregation to choose your next uh, officers. Well, what about his qualifications? Uh, the Bible is, is not silent on the qualifications of elders. Uh, we should note that it is amazing that God would use any of us, right? He would use any of us, and that's how God works. He uses sinners like me. Chief sinner at this church is me. He uses me and you to extend his kingdom, and, and that includes the under-shepherds, uh, to the elders of the congregation. Uh, there are high standards for elders and for deacons. We're going to see that in just a minute. And let me just say that if you think you found the, the perfect elder, the perfect deacon, then run. I'm serious about that. <laughs> if you think you found the perfect one, then don't nominate him. Uh, because none of us are perfect and we all fall short of the glory of God. And we're all leading with a limp, as one title of a book says. Uh, we all have major issues and... Um, so it's a, it's a weighty calling, and those who are nominating people and those who are nominated need to come with a place of humility um, that we are entrusting this task to folks whom we need to pray for a lot. Please pray for your officers, for your elders and your deacons, and please, selfishly, I would say, please pray for your pastor and his family. Um, but that has not removed the fact that there is a high standard for officers, elders and deacons alike. And I don't want to remove that tension, because that tension very much is in Scripture. It is a high qualification. So let's look at some of these things. I've divided these up, as many commentators do, into groups. Uh, there are a lot of different um, one-word qualifications, and I think I've been able to address most of them. I might have missed a couple. First of all, he must be a man above reproach. What does that mean? be a man above reproach. It means that he must be a man living in such a way that is above accusations, right, above accusations. 
Uh, one commentator put it this way, if you put a man's name and picture on a billboard or on the internet and ask for comments or accusations, there, there just wouldn't be a lot of major ones. I actually know a church in Birmingham that did this. I think it was a Reformed Baptist congregation. They took out a whole uh, page ad in the Birmingham newspaper with the pictures and names of their elder nominees and said, hey, if you got anything bad against these guys, put it in writing and send it to us. Sign your name. Give us your contact information, but send it to us. Wow. Wow. But an elder must be above reproach. He must not be a recent convert. Why is that? Uh, Because he is susceptible to the temptation to, to think he's puffed up, to think he's awesome and more important. Um, And then also he is open more and more to temptation of the devil. He must be well thought of by outsiders. Uh, You know, is he respectable by the community? Is he seen as respectable by his community? And by that we might say, what do his fellow employees say? What about his boss or those who work under him? Would they have good things to say about this person? Um, A second major category, we might say, is a man with godly relationships. You know, the office of elder does involve administration. It does often involve long meetings once a month as we think through schedules and all that kind of stuff. But primarily, it is a relational office. You think about a shepherd. It has to be good with sheep. (laughs) If there is someone who wants to be a shepherd who, who doesn't like sheep and doesn't like being around them and can't relate to them, then they'd probably don't want to be a shepherd. And so the same is true of the shepherd of God's people, under shepherds. And if they need to be good with, um, with the sheep, right? They must be relational. Uh, they must have good relationships. It must be a man of godly relationships. We see this especially with his household, 1 Timothy 3, verses 4 through 5. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? Are his children believers? As important as budgeting and planning are to a man uh, leading his family well, the biggest thing is does he lead his family spiritually? Has he taught his children the doctrines of our holy religion? Are his children free of the charge of debauchery? Or do they have a reputation of being hellions and those kids you don't want your kids to hang out with. Is he a one-woman man? How does he treat his wife? You know, you can find a lot about someone's character and how they treat their wives. Do they treat them with love and respect? Are they dedicated to them? Do they seek their uh, needs and to seek to, to serve them? These things are things to look for in an elder. Another, the third kind of big category we think about is a man of blameless conduct. In 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, there are seven positive and six negative qualities that must either define or not define an elder in Christ's church. This doesn't mean that an elder doesn't struggle with some of these things, right? Because we're all going to struggle with particular sins. But it does mean that they are not defined by them, right? And they don't allow them to rule and reign over them. And if there is one of these things they're really struggling with, then they are actually struggling against it and finding victory as they rely on Christ. Uh, So let's look at some of these. Well, the positive ones. Let's look at the positive ones. I'm going to touch on these as we go. Is he a sober-minded man? What does that mean? That means that he would be able to respond well to difficult situations instead of just blowing up 
That's important on a session. Our session is our uh, gathering of elders when we meet uh, once a month. Is he self-controlled, showing restraint and moderation in every area of life? Is he a lover of good, that is calling good good and evil evil? You know, as we think through the different um, battle lines in our culture of what the Bible says and what the world says, does he believe what the Bible says about hard things and what are unpopular things even in our culture? Is he upright and just? Does that mean that he's, does he, does he, is he able to make objective decisions without being partial, perhaps towards family or friends? Is he holy or devout? Does, that mean, does he have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ that he is cherishing and nourishing on a regular basis? Is he disciplined, especially when it comes to spiritual matters? But I think most importantly of the positive characteristics, is he gentle? You know, our Savior, our great shepherd, who is almighty God, he is so gentle. He is so gentle. In a, in a bruised reed, he will not break. and a faintly burning wick, he will not extinguish. As God calls elders to shepherd God's people through hard times and even through struggles with sin, an elder must come to that situation with gentleness. But there are also negative ones. Uh, elders must be free of the charge of being violent. They can't be violent men. They can't be a drunkard uh, using alcohol for reasons and purposes other than what God says. Alcohol is okay to drink in moderation if it does not cause you to, to stumble or to tempt a brother or sister in Christ. But it's wrong to get drunk. Uh, is a, a, an elder can't be a lover of money, right? Can't be in it for the money. Uh, can't be an arrogant man. They can't be quick-tempered or quarrelsome. Let me just say that, that that's a hard thing when you have um, quick-tempered or quarrelsome folks in leadership. That's a, that's a bad way to find peace and purity in the congregation. Well, the fourth and last major category for qualifications for elders, we might say he must be a man of faithful witness and ministry. And this goes for the office of deacon and elder alike. Who are those men whom you would want to nominate to this position and ultimately to elect? It's those who are already doing ministry, who already have a proven track record of ministry. Elders, one of their specific qualifications that separates them from deacons is that they have to be apt to teach. Now, apt to teach does not mean they have to be able to uh, preach or teach on a seminary level. That's not what that means, praise God. Uh, what it means is that our elders able to succinctly and communicate well the doctrines of the Bible uh, and correctly. That's, that's an important thing, too. Uh, they may not be able to teach a seminary class, but they do need to be able to fill in on a Sunday school morning and Sunday school or Wednesday night. And we've even had elders fill in on a Sunday morning when the preacher has been sick. Um, he must be hospitable, hospitable, welcoming folks in his home. And does he know the word and the gospel? So important. If, if you think a man doesn't know the gospel, don't don't nominate him to the office of elder or deacon. Instead, share the gospel with him. So the picture we get from Paul is that elders are called to be men of God who have walked with God for many years with a proven track record when it comes to character, godliness, and service. Ultimately, 
Elders are meant to mirror the character, godliness, and service of Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep who has laid down his life for his people. Well, as we shift gears to the office of deacon, let's say a few preliminary things. Well, the office of elder has been around forever and ever and ever and ever and ever, and amen. The office of deacon is a little different. Uh, as an actual office, it first got its start in Acts chapter 6. There was a little bit of an analog of someone who served the role of a deacon in the Jewish synagogues, as you got within the 1st and 2nd century B.C., uh, leading up to the point of Christ's birth, uh, who was in charge of the logistics, that sort of thing. And so uh, this idea of folks who would be fulfilling this role wouldn't be completely new uh, to Christians in the first century, but as far as an ordained type of office, it is new uh, when we get to Acts chapter 6. And so we read this in Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, where we read the historical reason and the beginning of the office of deacon. Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, hear now the word of the Lord. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Well, what just happened? Well, as the church grew in Jerusalem, praise God, it was growing leaps and bounds. It was outstripping its organizational structure. The old illustration of a trellis and a vine. The vine is overgrowing the trellis, and when a vine overgrows a trellis, it loses form and function and isn't as healthy. And so the trellis needed more structure, needed some more bars, it needed to be expanded. Primarily what was happening is some really important things were falling through the cracks, especially some of the widows who would have relied daily for their daily sustenance, for their protein and for their calories on the distribution of food to the poor and to the widows. They weren't getting it. They were getting uh, passed over accidentally. And so the apostles had been doing this, and it was just too much. And so they gathered the disciples together, that is, those who love Jesus, not just the 12 disciples, the, the disciples, the followers of Christ, and told them, hey, choose some men of your own desire. So that's where the nomination and election process comes in, and then we're going to lay hands on them, and we're going to anoint them and ordain them as, as, well, what we call deacons and develops into the office of deacon. Let me say this very clearly the office of deacon is not a stepping stone to the office of elder. Very frequently, that's how it happens. But that's not what it's meant to be biblically, right? You don't elect a man to deacon in the hopes of one day electing him to elder. Deacon is not where you put people to see if they'll work out or not, right? Let's, not, let's, let's, let's be careful as we think through that. The office of elder and deacon are two completely different callings. And you have exceedingly godly men 
who are called to the office of deacon. And you have exceedingly godly men who are called to the office of elder, deacon and elder. These are two different gift sets. And sometimes men can go back and forth. Sometimes men are called uh, to both offices at different points in their lives. But because one is uh, called to the office of elder or deacon does not mean that someone is lesser or greater than the other. Deacon is not a consolation prize because someone didn't make it to the office of elder. That's a lie from the pit of hell uh, because it would be to deny how God has gifted certain men to serve in these two very different roles. I just want to make that very, very clear that this is a, a worthy uh, office. Um, we like to joke as a session, our, our elders, that if the elders disappeared, you probably would notice two or three, down the, uh, two or three months down the line but if the deacons disappeared, you'd know Sunday morning, right? So we're very thankful that God has raised up very godly deacons at our church. I will say that as a church, uh, we have a couple holes to fill in this. We have lost two deacons this year. Uh, Drew Luker has moved away, has taken a job as a head coach um, up in McKenzie, football team. Um, and then also we've just buried uh, Coleman Fountain, who had been an officer in our church since 1966. Uh, so we are hurting for deacons, and this will be an important thing as we move forward. All right, so what is the role of deacon, and how is it different from that of, a, of an elder? Well, as seen in Acts chapter 6, deacons are called to help those in need. It is primarily an office of service rather than leadership, spiritual leadership. It is an office of service and ministry. They are to search out for those in the church and the community who need help who are in distress and poverty and financial need, and to figure out ways to help them. You know, this is not just inside the congregation, but also outside the congregation. One of the things our deacons do is they have the Benevolence Fund uh, here at the church in which we um, help folks financially uh, through the church, and we give to the Brute Benevolence Fund as well. We also have uh, deacons who are called, or all deacons are called, to develop the gift of liberality or generosity. What does that mean? It means that they are to develop generosity amongst God's people. As they identify these needs, they are to help the congregation see them and encourage them to give sacrificially to them. And as such, they are called to collect and distribute funds. It is primarily to the deacons uh, that the responsibility of budgeting and making financial decisions for the church, uh, that's, that's where that responsibility should lie. And fourth, for the care of the property of the congregation, or, care of the property of the church. Now, the sanctuary that I'm preaching in was built, I think, in 1922, and the church has been added on to since. We have a huge facility, and so uh, our deacons stay really busy with this, and we're very thankful for all that they do. What about their qualifications? You know, these are weighty tasks, and the qualifications are matching. They're no less weighty than that for elder. They're a little bit different with a lot of overlap because it is such an important um, office. Well, first, they must be men of dignified and good repute. Dignified men of good repute. Uh, just like the elders must have a good reputation in the community, so too deacons. This might even be more important than the elders having a good reputation because oftentimes the ministry of deacons is more apparent and more open and in the public than that of elders. Um, so they have to be well thought of. Therefore, they cannot be double-tongued which means they would say one thing and do another. They must not have a reputation of being a drunkard 
We're greedy. Again, moderation, uh, use of, moderate use of alcohol is okay. But getting drunk and relying on it, that's not okay. Since they're in charge of the distribution of money, especially to the poor and those in need, they must neither be stingy or sticky-handed, right? They can't have the five-finger five discount. They must be men of the Lord, right? Uh, while they take care of many physical things around here, that doesn't mean it's not a spiritual office. If that were the case, then we could just outsource a lot of the stuff to all sorts of management companies, but that would be ungodly. God desires us to have deacons to take care of many of these things, to visit the poor and the homeless, those who are homebound. And as such, deacons must be full of the Spirit. What does that mean? As one commentator put it, their lives are directed by God's Spirit, so that they are spiritually sensitive and are able to make good judgments, which is a sign of spiritual maturity. As those led by the Spirit, they are to be full of wisdom. You know, there's so many sticky situations that elders and deacons both have to deal with. And they have to have a lot of wisdom to know how to handle these things. You know, knowledge comes from books and from living. Wisdom comes from the fear of the Lord and walking with Him. And as such, they gain wisdom by holding fast to the mystery of the faith. So knowing the Word of God is not just an elder thing. Deacons are called to know the Word of God as well and how to apply it. Um, therefore, they are also to be unhindered by burdened conscience. I've had a burdened conscience before, hadn't you, right? When you know you needed to confess something before the Lord and deal with something. The officers, elders, and deacons alike are called to have free consciences, right, with no unrepentant sin that's plaguing them with guilt and shame. Well, as with the elders, as you pray through different potential candidates, I encourage you to ask the question, is this man a tested or proven man, right? The 1 Timothy 3 tells us to test the man first and then lay hands on him. You know, generally the best candidates are those who are already doing the work. You know, much of serving is, is just showing up, right? Uh, but right now, just showing up isn't necessarily a given. And I'm not talking about COVID stuff. I mean, it's, it was different people have to make their own decisions. That's not what I'm talking about. But this is our culture in general, being dedicated to an organization, being dedicated to the church. You know, just like elders, we ask the question of deacons, does he manage his household and children well? 1 Timothy 3.12 says, Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. You know, indeed, the same philosophy holds true. The deacon is to love and cherish his wife and manage well, things well at home because the home really is the closest analog to the church as the deacon cares for the church and works for the advancement of the kingdom of God. Well, the final qualification is uh, for a deacon to have a godly wife. Now, he doesn't have to be married, but if he is married, his wife must be godly. And, and I think all commentators agree this doesn't just apply to deacons, but also to elders. Um, we read this in 1 Timothy 3, 11. Their, their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. You know, I've actually known of a man, not at this church, not at my last church, uh, who went to seminary, interviewed for an ordained position, and was disqualified because of his wife. And it was a really apparent thing. Not because she wasn't good looking or didn't have the right vocabulary, but because she was ungodly. 
Officers are meant to have godly wives. Well, this has certainly been a quick survey of these two offices. And you'll never find the perfect officer. If you do, run, (laughs) right? Um, The only perfect servant was and is Christ. And what an example he sets for officers in the church. As we consider Mark chapter 10, verse 45, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. As I close this unique sermon on the office of elder and the office of deacon, let me just say that primarily the role of office and deacon like that of any believer is to point people to Jesus. Do you know Jesus? Do you know what he did for you? The great shepherd of the sheep who is God? That he would come to this earth who is God not to be served, not to be glorified, not to, uh, you know, um, have people carry him around on their shoulders, not to have the easy life. He came to a very hard life, not just outwardly, not just because of poverty, but as he walked a sinless life, as he was persecuted, as he was spat upon, as he was called a drunkard, as he was called a sinner because he would hang out with sinners, you know, people like you and me who need to know him. But he lived the perfect life of service to God and to his people. So that at the cross, he could take to the cross a perfect sacrifice. There cannot be one blemish in the perfect sacrifice. And then he would bear on the cross the just penalty for not his sins, because he was not a sinner, but for our sins. For our sake, God made him who knew no sin, Christ, to be sin, to be the record of our sin, to be a sin offering, so that we might become the righteousness of God. Did you know this? This is what he did for you. I call on the name of the Lord today that you might be saved. Let's pray. Father, I thank you uh, for how you have structured the church. Father, we pray for godly leaders, not just here at First Pres here in Bruton, but every church. Um, Lord, that you would raise up uh, new officers, new pastors, new missionaries, new evangelists, Lord. Um, that you would do a great work and bring revival to our land. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, receive now the Lord's benediction to you. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. And all God's people said, Amen.